friends, and welcome to Beauty the Interviews, a podcast production of The Beautiful Project, a grassroots storytelling initiative that invites women to belong in the world with substance and with strength. I'm Sarah Stevens, the host of this podcast and the founder of The Beautiful Project. So today is kind of a big deal. Uh, I've been thinking about today's interview for many, many months because today is my interview. I thought for a while about maybe just doing it by myself, just me over the mic. And I realized that if I did it that way, first of all, it'd be a huge deviation from how it is that you're accustomed to hearing these stories. But second, there is some importance in the idea of a witness to your life, someone else who um, is able to see you and know you and love you for who you are. And I hope that that's what I provide for the women who sit across the microphone from me. So when I considered my own interview, I uh, sort of conceded to the idea that I definitely wanted to involve another person, someone on the other side of the mic who sees me and knows me and loves me. And so I invited my wife. (laughs) I pulled out the big guns um, to spend some time with me today to help me tell my body story Uh, about the ways that uh, it's suffered and about the ways it's helped me survive. So, welcome. Thanks. It's an honor and a privilege always. So, who are you? Well, I'm Becky David. I am a wife, co-parent, and huge fan. Oh, that's so good of you. Well, you know, it's true. So, I'm going to have to work here to not take over. Uh, So, I'm just going to sit in my seat like a good interviewee. I got this. Okay, good. All right. So let's start the way we always start. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the time, the first time that you realized your body was like wasn't like other bodies. Mm. So I've written about this before. Um, so if this is redundant, I apologize. But I was nine years old, and I received uh, for Christmas that year. I asked for. Well, I didn't know at the time I'd asked for it. So for Christmas, I got a workout mat and ankle weights. I remember the ankle weights with. Lots of clarity. Um, <laughs> I think I might have gotten like a VHS workout DVD. It was a whole pile of things that invited me to move my body. It's not exactly how that memory got stored in my mind, though. Mm-hmm. How the memory was stored in my mind is that from a very early age, the communication to my body was that it needed to be different. It needed to shrink. Mm-hmm. Um, that's particularly devastating when you still believe in Santa, right? <laughs> so right. Santa's a lot like God mm-hmm. to a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I felt like, you know, it sort of confirmed what I suspected, which is that there was something wrong with me that I needed to change. And it must be true. Both God and Santa thought so. Amen. Yeah. Yes. Literally. Okay. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> So it felt like a very like deep, <clears throat> sort of profound spiritual revelation for me that I needed to move my nine-year-old body differently. Now, I've talked to my mom about it since then, since I found out there was no Santa, and which sort of created a different impact, no less significant, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and she told me that I wanted, that's what I wanted for Christmas, all I wanted for Christmas And I wanted it because it's what she was doing with her life. She was doing a lot of aerobics. It was the 80s. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't remember it that way. You know, I remember it as this message that I didn't necessarily want to receive. Mm -hmm. However, her insight 
is really important. Mm-hmm. Our daughters watch us. Yeah. They want to know what we think about our bodies so that they can figure out what to think about their bodies. Mm-hmm. And so I watched my mom, who was really, she was taking all the, the, the wisdom at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, the wisdom at the time was, um, well, Kate Moss was like a icon, mm-hmm. you know? So anybody who deviated from that was clearly too fat. So my mom was always trying to do something different with her body, whether it was Weight Watchers or aerobics. And I, apparently nine years old, I just wanted to be a part of the, the, the gig, mm-hmm. you know? Right. So when's the next time that really sticks out to you when you remember your body playing a significant role in how you saw yourself? Um, I remember realizing that I was, like, chubby, uh, in seventh grade, probably. And I realized it because I worked really hard to be a part of the popular group of girls. I, I've always been an overachiever, so I want to belong to, like, <clears throat> the upper echelon of whatever thing I'm doing. And so at that time, what I was doing was navigating socially, right? So, um, I never quite felt like I belonged there, though. I was like the <clears throat> the pity, chubby inclusion. Now, if you ask these people today, they're like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Again, this really wonderful opportunity for us to understand that our perception is 100% real to us, but it's not the whole story, mm-hmm. right? Perception. Per- right. That's perception, yeah. So I remember being in seventh grade, and how I knew it really was because um, the boys wanted to date all my friends and nobody wanted to date me. Mm-hmm. So... That was when I started to ask myself, what's wrong with me? Mm-hmm. It's what, um, one of the things I'll talk about a lot is when we, when we say, when we talk about fat, mm-hmm. what we're really talking about is, um, if I'm fat, will you still love me? Am I still lovable? Mm-hmm. When we say, I don't want to be fat, it means I want to be lovable, you know, because we've equated those two things. Um, so I, very early memories of that, very early memories of thinking, I'm not lovable because I'm too chubby. Um, Some of that, I think, was confirmed in the social group, but I also think that they were all fighting their own battles. All these girls were fighting their own battles. Trying to belong. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. so part of how you did that was that you kind of climbed on the back of the people who were below you, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. We still do that, unfortunately. Uh Anyway, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. Right. Right. So speaking of, excuse me, speaking of body dysmorphia and, Mm. Uh, right, which is what you're talking about. You and I were looking at a photo recently that your mom sent. Yeah. Talk about that, please. So, such a weird experience. Of all the things that I, you know, I've been able in my adult life to adjust to the idea that my narratives were based on my perspective, right? And flawed as a result, or, or just not the whole story. Skewed. Skewed, right? So, you know, that, that nine-year-old story of Santa, mom thinking I was too fat, mom really saying, no, you actually wanted to do these things. Um, so that sort of skewed perspective, I've, I've been able to adjust to it. The thing I've never adjusted to, because I didn't think it was true, I really thought what was true, though, at its core, is that my body was always too fat and always needed to be fixed. Mm-hmm. That is the core of all of the other narratives that surrounded it, right? Mm-hmm. And that one was true. Duh. Well, I mean, just a given, right? Mm -hmm. Like the sky is blue. Mm -hmm. My body was too fat and needed to be fixed. So my mom sent this photo she must have dug up from somewhere, and it's like maybe my sophomore or junior year in high school. It's a basketball photo. Um, I had to, like, 
stare at it for many days. I've looked at it probably a hundred times because it is so counter to my experience. There is literally nothing fat about my body. I look athletic, and I don't mean that in the way that we can say it sometimes, like, oh, she's just athletic. Softballish. Right, right, yes, right. <laughs> the, like the way that we use it to describe thicker women. Um, I mean, I looked like I was an athlete, so I didn't look really thin, right? But, I, but that doesn't mean I looked fat at all. Mm-hmm. It is not how I remember myself, not even a little bit. Um, so it was... The behavior that resulted from this really profound body dysmorphia, because that's what it is, Mm -hmm. right? The idea that I saw myself so differently than I actually was, um, is no different than any person who suffers from an eating disorder. You know, Mm -hmm. body dysmorphia is often at the root of eating disorders. And it was really a huge revelation to me. I'd always thought that the the eating disordered behavior, so the disordered eating that I had um, engaged in, in starting in high school, I always thought that that, it was bad, but I did it in relationship to the fact that my body really was too fat, right? Mm -hmm. Mind-blowing to me that I was doing it in relationship to a dysmorphic idea of my body. Right, right. Perhaps it would be helpful, I'm not sure, um, for your listeners who may not... um, maybe new to the podcast or, mm-hmm. or we, sometimes we use language we assume you mm. know everybody understands what, mm-hmm. what all that means um, talk about the disordered eating just so people understand what you mean by that sure so for me disordered eating has taken a lot of different forms it's very mm-hmm. shape shifty to me um, it tends to still rear its head in lots of ways but how it started for me the first time I remember overtly disordered eating was the summer before my freshman year. I remember the chubby-bodied junior high kid who really wanted people to love her. Um, So I decided that the only way to do that probably was to start running and starving. And so uh, I didn't eat. I remember a couple of times my mom, like I remember one time we ordered pizza and I took a plate out and got two pieces and I remember her commenting that it was nice to see me eat. And I remember taking the pizza back to my bedroom and waiting until everyone fell asleep and then throwing it away. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was engaged in some pretty, pretty heavily disordered eating. I was starving. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember weighing myself right before I started my freshman year, and it was the lowest I'd ever, I'd ever really weighed. It was, I remember it flashed on the, the red numbers, 137, which that should tell you something about my metabolism and my body composition from a very early age. I'd spent three months starving and running. I still had the I had a, the metabolism of a thirteen year old. Right. Those two things combined produced one hundred and thirty seven pounds, mm-hmm. not seventy nine. Mm-hmm. And so I always thought I was okay too because I wasn't like that person who right. was starving, the one with the collarbones pr- protruding, the one who was clearly dysmorphic in their body image. Like mm-hmm. I wasn't dysmorphic in my head. Mm-hmm. I was I had a fat body that needed to be tamed. Mm-hmm. What makes eating Disordered. That's a great question. Wow, that was really good. Uh, big guns. Big guns. Big guns. Bringing in the big guns. Um, today, I would tell you that what makes eating disordered is any um, is any method of eating that isn't a response to our body's actual desires, needs, cravings. It's anything that disconnects us from our body. Mm. It, 
so our hunger cues are driven by a complex system that's not just about how expanded or contracted our stomach is, although the, that does factor in. There's a physiological component. Um, but hunger and fullness are very complicated biomechanical processes. Um, I think from probably the earliest age, most of us are taught to not trust that process. Hmm. So really, for me, although that was the overt disordered eating, I think my first bout of disordered eating was when I was 11 years old in Weight Watchers, mm-hmm. counting points. And if I didn't have enough points left and had used my flex points, who remembers flex points? That was fun. That was like a bank of freedom is what flex points were. But um, then, and I was still hungry, I couldn't eat. Mm-hmm. So our hunger is there for a reason. And yes, it's true. Sometimes those Hunger cues are based on emotions, right? Yes, that happens. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that they're not real or that they need to be tamed. Mm-hmm. So for me today, disordered eating is anything that disconnects me from my bodily experience of eating, mm-hmm. which yeah. let me list the things that can happen that, that feed that. So um, to me today, uh, it's everything from telling myself that I should probably be on the keto diet to because there's nothing connected bodily for me in manipulating what goes into my body that way, right? Mm-hmm. Anything from that to binge eating where I'm not paying any attention to it, right? Right. Um, you you use a word a lot in our household, <coughs> um, arbitrary, mm. and it seems to me there's a connection then with uh, disordered eating and arbitrary measures and numbers and. Mm. You know, that have nothing to do with what's actually happening in our body. No, it's the generally um, any of those, you know, so whether it's Adkins or Keto or Weight Watchers or I'm forgetting things, Body for Life or all the th- all of the methods by which Whole30 Whole30 that and I'm not, you know, I'm not taking issue with people who people who are engaged in that kind of eating. Right. I'm not saying that when you do Whole30, you don't feel better. I think there are ways in which you do feel better. Right. I'd have to be a moron to not pay attention to that. That's true. Mm -hmm. You do get reduction in in your inflammation and all sorts of things. But to think that that's all we are here for, Mm. right? To to pursue this fix for who we are physically constantly, that's where I start to go, see, that's out of whack. Mm. Because I am my body and I am more than my body. Mm -hmm. So it's obvious to me, first of all, because... You know, I live with you, yeah. right? But even from this conversation, it's obvious to me that you have done just an enormous amount of work around this very yeah. piece, I right? Know. About so, what does it mean to you to have a healthy relationship with food? I'm gonna level with you. I'm still figuring that out because I had 40 years, or you know, 30 plus years of disordered eating in some fashion. So it was starving in high school. And then it was Body for Life in college, um, and it was Weight Watchers kind of sprinkled throughout there for good measure. So it was this constant process of um, p- long periods of restriction, and then uh, periods of fuck it, I'm not, you know, can't do anything with that. Mm-hmm. What actually, um, so there's a particular fat activist that I love. She talks about diet land and donut land. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so there are periods of uh, diet land, so many periods of diet land. And then I would 
be hungry and exhausted mm-hmm. because I always coupled diet land with exercise. Uh, I mean, rigorous, rigorous, obsessive mm-hmm. exercise, mm-hmm. obsessive. Well, if you're going to obsess about one thing, it's so much easier to keep obsessing about other things. Right. Yes. I'm <laughs> stuck in that loop of fix my body, fix my body, mm-hmm. fix my body. So, um, so diet land was marked by those two things. Then donut land is like, fuck it. I just don't want to do anything with any of it anymore. I'm going to eat whatever I want, whenever I want. Oftentimes people will think that that's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. They think that what I'm saying is donut, donut land. land. Yeah. Um, I, so there's a middle ground this fat activist talks about it. She calls it discernment. Mm-hmm. So in between diet land and donut land, there is discernment. Now, discernment, for most people, I guess, if you really sat them down and said, which one do you think is easier? They're going to say diet land. There are clear rules in diet land. Mm. They're clear. Mm-hmm. It, on Whole30, it's, you eat these foods and you don't eat these foods and you get this outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, the same is true in all of diet land, right. right? Now, the truth is, in multiple longitudinal studies, it's clear that diets fail after 24 months in 95% of cases. Right. Would we do anything else, anything else that had that kind of statistical evidence? I mean, really, it's not a rhetorical question, right. would we? No. I, I think not. Absolutely not. But we love it because it's got rules that tell us how to feel and be in the world. And if we follow these rules and the promises, we will shrink and then we will be lovable. We will be happy. We'll, we'll fit be, in. We'll fit in, right? Mm-hmm. So the allure of Dietland is extraordinary. It's still extraordinary to me today. It still tugs at me because um, I've been working on, well, I'm not going to lie. When I started, when I really jumped off the path of I'm done in diet land, I did what every uh, diet land recovery person does. I hauled ass over to donut land. land. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, this is going to be great. It's going to (laughs) be macaroni and cheese and little Debbie's because those are the things that I've always restricted. I mean, always restricted no matter what phase I was in. Um. So I hung out in Donut Land for just a little bit, you know, and uh, you actually feel equally shitty in Donut Land. Mm. Mm. Like, you just don't feel good if you're really paying attention to your body. It's not telling you to live in Donut Land. And I know that when you live in Diet Land, you're afraid it's going to tell you to stay there. Right. It doesn't. Right. Because it wants to survive. That's what it's been doing. My body's been doing, it's been surviving on my behalf, even when I've tortured it mm-hmm. over and over and over. Mm-hmm. It just keeps figuring out ways to survive. Part of how that happened is that I took it through periods of starvation. And so in order to survive, it ratcheted down my metabolism mm. to save me. Mm-hmm. It's literally doing the exact thing it's supposed to do. Right. And I've hated it for doing the exact thing it's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. So what does a healed relationship with food look like? It looks like discernment. And I am working really hard to be patient with that process because I don't have a lot of practice at it. Mm-hmm. maybe six months out of 40 years. Right. So um, sometimes for me, the, the basic, the only rule really in discernment is to be connected and embodied, to be in my body. I wonder if there's also one more. That'd be great because I'm figuring out the rules or yeah. if there aren't any, I'm not yeah. sure. And maybe this isn't a rule per se, but I'm struck by something that you just said about... Um, the way your body just does what it's supposed to do in spite of the way you treat it. Yeah. And I know that one of the journeys in this um, process for you is learning how to love your body. Yeah. 
And I'm wondering what it's like to realize that your body never stopped loving you. Hmm. It makes me cry. <laughs> it's like uh, finding out. It's like knowing for sure that guardian angels are for real. And what, what would you, I mean, like if you really were able to visualize the guardian angel next to you, you know, how would that feel? It's like I've been, like I've had this protector. Mm-hmm walking with me, always walking with me, and, and adjusting to my freedom, the freedom that I'm going to use to inflict um, to inflict harmful things onto it. Mm-hmm. It actually, some, sometimes I struggle with the idea that it's been such an abusive relationship, mm-hmm. motivated by me, right. right? And that it's stuck around. So sometimes I have to do this really seriously because we have such a we have such an interesting cultural paradigm around that. We do a lot of victim shaming mm-hmm. of people who stay in abusive relationships. Right. So sometimes I have to realize, like, um, this isn't an actual abusive relationship. It, ha- it, it hasn't gone anywhere because it loves you. Mm. Right? It really loves you. And it knew, it knew about your becoming. Mm-hmm. It knew what you would become. Mm-hmm. It just had to stay. And it stayed. And now we're here figuring out discernment together mm-hmm. so one of the things that is really significant on this journey for you is the pivot mm-hmm. right the thing yeah. that changed yeah. everything for you yeah talk about that um yeah so the pivot uh the pivot had like most things you know in hindsight i can see that it had been coming i had started to listen to some um fat activists on podcasts and I'd started to believe that it was possible to not fix your body all the time because I heard other people were doing it and they seemed relatively happy. (laughs) So I was like, wow, maybe that could be the case. And then I'd also thrown out my scale because you told me I had to. Um, (laughs) One of the few times you actually listen to me, good choice. Thanks. (laughs) But I really, really needed to at the time for lots of reasons. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, I'd thrown out my scale. I'd had a doctor's appointment coming up, and I generally uh, anybody in a any remotely marginalized body, particularly fat bodies, knows that there is doctor's appointment anxiety. It, actually, not even fat bodies. Every woman I talk to, they're like they have anxiety before they go to the doctor and get mm-hmm. on the scale. Mm-hmm. What does that tell me? It doesn't matter what size your body is, right? right? So I. Um, had, you know, done a lot of internal work before this appointment and stepped on the scale. I hadn't been on a scale in months. I had shifted things, some pretty major things. I'd been exercising a, a ton. Um, I had switched to a plant-based diet. I'd quit drinking. So all sorts of things that, from a discernment perspective, felt really good. You know, my body mm-hmm. felt really good. I was, and my body was functioning really well, mm-hmm. physically. So uh, I got on the scale and I gained seven pounds. And I had to work in the waiting room. Like I had to work pretty hard around. Like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna shame this. I'm just gonna sit with it. My body's doing what it's supposed to do. And then I spent some time with the physician. We chatted about my weight uh, gain. And and this person is a friend of mine. Actually, I used to run her clinic. Um, she came at this next suggestion from a place of sincere care and concern because it's the only tool she has available to her. And she's in the middle of her own body story mm-hmm. that is ha- that clearly has its own obsessions. Mm-hmm. So um, 
she said, well, yeah, you know, years of restrictive eating and then your thyroid issues, your metabolism doesn't function like everyone else's. So the only way we can fix that is to speed it up. And I concurred. Speeding up my metabolism is like the thing I've wanted since I was Good nine. Idea. Yeah. Um, and so she said, well, the only way we can do that is with speed. And uh, I don't know how to explain how like time slowed down, but it did. Time just slowed down. And things got very clear and sort of heavy and echoey. And I remember asking her, is that sustainable? And she said, well, I can keep you on it for a long time if you come in and have your kidneys and liver checked every quarter. I have functioning kidneys and a functioning liver right now. Uh, she told me I'd have to eat five to 700 calories a day for the rest of my life to maintain a healthy body weight. All things that are told to people who have gastric bypass as well, so mm-hmm. not really different that mm-hmm. way. Um, <clears throat> I went to my car with the prescription for speed. I considered taking it for a long time. Mm-hmm. It felt like a magic pill, you know, like, oh, I could finally have some relief from this, right? And what was this? Mm-hmm. At the moment, I thought I could have some relief from this body, but truthfully, it was the idea underneath that was I could have some relief from the obsession about my body because it finally behaved the way it's supposed to behave. Mm -hmm. And then I thought about my daughter. I have a fifth, at the time I had a 15 year old daughter. She she turned 16, um, since then, but I thought about her and her current body shape. And right now it is classically beautiful in the way that, uh, draws attention and makes her lovable and all the things that our culture does with beauty And I realized that someday her body probably wouldn't behave quite as well. And I thought about her getting this prescription and what I would want her to choose. And I realized that in the absence of another voice in her head, that she would just go fill the prescription. And I'm a mama. And so it's my job to be that voice. And I couldn't do it if I demonstrated different behavior. Mm -hmm. If I thought about my own first story, my mom who wasn't doing anything wrong, she was exercising a ton, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, I imagine what it would be like if I'd watched her take speed. Mm -hmm. It's just not a message I could give to her. So I didn't know what came next because all I had known was the cycle of diet land, donut land, diet land, donut land. I knew I had to get off that train. I was off. I, I, and I didn't know what other way of living there was, but I was confident there was one. And so that's what these months have been about, figuring mm-hmm. out what is that other way. Okay. And then the project was born. Yeah. So the project, really the project grew out of that seed, that moment mm-hmm. um, where I shredded the prescription and decided to stop living that way. So I talked about realizing that my daughter needed a different voice in her head, and yes, she needs mine. But then I thought about raising a teenager, and anyone who's raising a teenager has raised one, understands that you are one singular voice that gets drowned out in a chorus of other voices. And so I started to think about this idea of a chorus of courage. What if our collective stories could come together in one collective voice and heal us collectively? So that when she's ready, when she sits in her car discerning whether or not to take something that's bad for her, that'll hurt her insides in order to tame her body, that she'll at least have a place to go with a different voice. Um, and from there, the project really was born. The, the platforms sort of came to me mm-hmm. like they needed to be told. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Thank you. Literally beautiful. Yeah, it's yeah. full. Yeah. yeah. 
It is. Yeah. So what now? So it's been nine months. I know, uh, I launched the project nine months ago. Um, the last nine months have been beautiful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I don't want to overuse the word, but man, when you add that second L, it is exactly how beauty is supposed to feel. It's full, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I have been witness to acts of courage and bravery that leave me speechless, that have made me weep, mm-hmm. that have healed me. You bet. Our collective stories, healing us collectively. Mm-hmm. I am honored. It's honored's like the wrong word. I don't even have a deeper word for it, but I am something deeper than honored <laughs> uh, to be trusted with the stories that the women bring to me. And I don't even publish all of them. They write, you know, women write to me. They tell me about these gargantuan acts of bravery. Things like, I bought my first pair of shorts for the first time in three decades. Nice. That's amazing. You bet. Uh, And I know what kind of active courage that is. You bet. I have... I believe when I met you, you didn't own a pair of shorts. Not a single pair. Mm. Didn't own a pair of shorts. Mm -hmm. And I think I was like 50 pounds thinner than I am now. And I'm like... I don't just own shorts now. I own a two-piece swimsuit. Yes, I mean, you do. Yeah. <laughs> what happened? I love it. Um, so, extraordinary nine months of growth. And what I've discovered in that process is that there are lots of things that I've used over time to shrink myself. Um, one of those things is busyness. And I like to get real busy Uh, and do all the things all the time and it's one of the things that I use to disembody to stay out of my skin and so in the last nine months you know um, the beautiful project was just going to start as like this little blog that I was going to write and then it just became something bigger and uh, and it is the privilege of a lifetime but it is also not my paid work right Mm -hmm. now and so I have a lot of paid work as well and so a couple months ago I started to feel this tug of uh, doing all the time without being present. And I started to feel disembodied in lots of ways and like I wasn't enough again. All the things that I'm preaching about all the time. Mm-hmm. And I realized that a part of that was from this extraordinary busyness. And then I realized that I'm my own boss now and uh, <laughs> I can build rhythm into whatever I need rhythm, wherever I need rhythm. And uh what's become clear to me is that what we need is rhythm with the podcast. So many podcasts have seasons. And so, uh, the big announcement today is that this is the last episode of season one, the season of taking up space is what we're going to call it. Because what we did is we made space for each other's stories in this first season. Um, I, I will listen to these interviews for the rest of my life. Uh, Really? It was, inaugural and groundbreaking for me in so many ways and so many other women I know that was the case for them too so we're going to take a brief break um, until January during that time I'm going to start to put together the stories for season two and season two will be the season of survivors so we're going to invite to the microphone women who have survived something in a bodily way so survivors of domestic assault or sexual assault which is one in four women, mm-hmm. one in four women have survived sexual assault. Mm-hmm. 
we're going to talk to survivors of cancer and uh, mamas who've survived the loss of their child, which is a bodily, yeah, that's a bodily loss, you, bet. you know. Um, so we're going to talk in season two about the ways that our body has helped us survive. Mm-hmm. Because we talk a lot about the science behind um, the ways our bodies grow and shift and change. We do a huge disservice to the reality that things like that, survival moments, truly a trauma, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The way that that impacts our sense of being in our skin. Mm-hmm. We don't make space for that. Instead, we go, just go to Orange Theory or go on a diet. Our bodies are helping us survive. They're, they're, they're physical manifestations of what's happening inside of us. I think that there's space for survivor stories. I think we make the space for them um, and we see what happens. So that's what's next. A brief break, um, October, November, December, while we put together season two, the season of survivors. During that time, I'm going to host some guest bloggers. I'll pull some um, wisdom from fat activists around books that I'm reading or some articles around the connection between health and weight. We're going to start talking more about that, too, Mm because I get a little fired up about that. Um, (laughs) Yes, she does. Yeah, I might write a little more, uh, but the thing I'm going to do, the thing you can count on me to do is to demonstrate to you that rest is okay. Rest is one of the ways that you invite your body to the same space as you are present. So you and your body get to exist in the same space and you get to rest. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. That freaks me out. I got you. (laughs) I know. You love rest. (laughs) Yes, Yes, I do. But what's scary to me about that is um, we live in this culture that in order to stay relevant, I mean... Any marketing professional will tell you that consistent publication on social media is the thing that makes people relevant and grow, right? Like growth Mm -hmm. and relevance are attached to consistent production. And there will still be some production coming out of the project. So, and marketing professionals say that because it's true. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're Mm -hmm. not making it up, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, This is never, this project has never been about me fitting into the algorithm that works for everybody else. Right. In fact, this is about me taking up space in a different way right. and inviting women to take up space mm-hmm. in a different way. So I'm going to trust those um, those notions far enough to say it's okay for me to take a break and that when we're ready to drop season two, that uh, certainly that the women who have followed to date and the men, there are like 15 men. I, I do know the demographics <laughs> of our following. Um, that they'll be there just waiting for the wisdom, Mm -hmm. uh, and that they'll share it Mm -hmm. and, and invite Mm -hmm. people to continue to follow us. So I'm working, I'm going to take an actual, I'm going to, I'm going to take an action here that, uh, that invites both me and the people around me to rest and still be enough. That's beautiful. It's scary. I'm freaked out, but I'm going to do it anyway because we can do hard things. Yes, we can. Yeah. Because hard isn't bad. Hard isn't bad. It's just hard. It's just hard. Yep. Right. Right. Well, is there any, I mean, that's, that's really, um, I think a good place to stop. I mean, here's what we're up to, but is there anything else you want to say? I really want to, I want to speak directly to the women who have, um, 
reached out to me in any form throughout the last nine months. I want to talk directly to the people who may not have shared their story directly to me, but who consistently um, share the posts from the project Mm -hmm. or tag their friends and say things like, Susie, this, you need to see this. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we're living in a really interesting time women in particular or mm-hmm. we're living in an interesting time i heard somebody today call it the reckoning <laughs> pretty sure it was glennon pretty sure it was glennon doyle melton but she's always saying things like the reckoning which i think is a great way to say it but there seems to be this awakening of what it means to be a woman we see it in me too and time's up now and and these movements that aren't going away mm-hmm. Uh, the women who have responded to the Beautiful Project, they are the grassroots of the people who will be sure that this project becomes one of those things, one of those movements that tells, that tells the world that women aren't going away. We're done shrinking to fit your narrative. Uh, we're done um, manipulating our bodies and injuring ourselves so that we can become lovable and likable and beautiful and from, from a... Generally from a male perspective. Mm-hmm. From a standard we did not create. Precisely from a standard we did not create. Mm-hmm. We're done silencing our voices. Mm-hmm. When you take our bodies from us, we're going to take them back. Um, and so I think what can happen sometimes when, when we start to call out this kind of stuff, like really stop silencing it and say it, it for me it can feel overwhelming. Mm-hmm. For me it can feel like, Um, we're never going to move the needle on this thing. And then somebody sends me a message and says, I just let, I just encouraged my, my daughters in a bigger body to buy the two piece swimsuit that she wanted. Mm -hmm. The revolution is made up of acts of courage, just like that. One at a time. One at a time. Mm -hmm. And so to the women who have already come with, uh, gratitude is an understatement. Kind of like, I couldn't find a word better than honored. But you've changed me. And uh, I can't wait to see what we can continue to do together. The way that we'll change the world and invite women to be full and fierce and free in their skin. Um, so I hope you come along for what's next. It's We are going to change the world together, one act of courage at a time. And speaking of which... On behalf of uh, your listeners and followers and the people who love you and the people who wish they were in your inner circle, who admire you, um, thank you for your courage because that's really what this is about. Your courage to look at your own self and your own life and your courage to do the thing that you know you're called to do in the world because that changes the world. So thank you. It is very literally my honor all right friends that's all we have today uh for the interview with me (laughs) um which feels kind of weird uh i am hopeful i'm hopeful that there was something in it for you um and i'm really hopeful that you stick around for season two while we're not creating new content that you 
tell your friends and pass it to your moms and your sisters and your aunts. And actually, it's not just for women, because part of the way we shift this narrative is for men to understand what it's been like for us to live in our bodies. So if you want more stories about body, about beauty, and about belonging, you should subscribe to this podcast. If you loved today's episode, make sure you go out and leave us a review on iTunes or any place that you listen to podcasts. If you want more information about The Beautiful Project, you'll find it in the show notes, or you can follow us at The Beautiful Project on Instagram and on Facebook. That's all we have for now, friends. I'll see you soon.